Let's go ahead and turn to the book of Joshua, as we mentioned in our prayer this morning. We will be covering this chapter here. Now, as you're turning there, let me remind you at this point in Israel's history, as they have crossed over the River Jordan, uh, they have taken the city of Jericho by the powerful and actually the miraculous hand of God. And we can see up to this point, though, that God was with Israel. Uh, We saw the taking of the city of Jericho in the last chapter. Yet things quickly change. And uh, we may think all is well one moment, and then, of course, the next moment things may not be going so well. And uh, this is similar to the Christian walk, uh, very definitely. One day we may feel that we're very victorious over things in our lives or as we help others, we may see some good going there and we're very thankful for it. And then, of course, the next day we may have defeat. And that is just the part and parcel of the Christian life. And we do have those days in which we do seem to be succeeding by the grace of God and sometimes it feels like we're taking two steps backwards. Well, the cause in Israel's case for their failure at this point, and we'll be looking at in chapter 7, of course, is sin. And in this chapter, Israel is to go against the city of Ai, and uh, they're, of course, going to be defeated here at first. We might call this chapter, if you want to name something like this, Achor the Troubler of Israel. Uh, if you go to, we won't take the time, if you were to take the time to turn to Second First Chronicles chapter 2, verse 7, he's actually called a troubler there in Israel. And that he did. Because of his what he did, we see that not only does he trouble his own household, as we see at the end of the chapter, but also he worked havoc upon the nation of Israel as they were sorely uh, embarrassed and defeated before their own enemies. Well, let's begin by looking at verse 1. And really, verse 1 is kind of a summation of what has occurred, uh, what will occur in this chapter. But the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. For Achan, the son of Carmichai, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed thing, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. As I said, this is a bit of a summation of what has occurred by Achan. It actually took place in the last chapter, though it's not mentioned, but I mean during the events of the last chapter. And we see here, because of Achan's sin, because he did what he did here, that is, taking of the accursed thing, we see that God is angry with the children of Israel. Now, you notice here, first of all, that Joshua and the leaders are unaware of this. They don't realize that sin has taken place, nor do they realize that God is angry with Israel because of this particular sin. Also notice something else about verse 1 there. It's not just Achan that God is mad at, but we see here that he is uh, angry against the children of Israel as a whole. Another one, other, another way of saying it, that in reality the guilt of Achan's transgression is also imputed to the whole nation. Now, this is not an unusual method of God's dealing with men. We see this actually quite all through the Scripture. And this is, of course, one of the reasons why some people kick against it. Well, it's not my fault. Why should I be uh, charged with somebody else's guilt? Well, again, this is the way God has determined to work with His creatures and 
simply we just have to trust and believe that it is the wisdom of God working here. Now, it is true the actual sin is Achan. We see that in verse 1 very plainly. But the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, uh, yeah, Zerah, the tribe of Judah, took the accursed thing. It wasn't the whole children of Israel. Joshua himself wasn't involved in stealing or taking this Babylonian garment and the wages of gold and silver. Actually, it was only Achan. But at this point, though, the whole tribe of Israel, the children of Israel, will, of course, be imputed here with the guilt. Now, the actual sin stems from the command given back in chapter 6, you remember, in verse 18. And ye in any wise keep yourselves from the accursed thing, lest ye make yourselves accursed when ye take the accursed thing, make the camp of Israel a curse, and trouble it. So they have plenty of warning here. Every man, boy, and girl, and those especially who were going in to take the city, knew the command of Joshua, actually the command of the Lord here. Do not take of the accursed thing. If you do, it will trouble you. So it's a plain command here. You cannot miss this. But then how often do we miss it? The command is plain. Someone has told you your duty. And for whatever reasons we can dream up with and excuses that we can give, we just don't obey. Well, again, this seems to be the part and parcel of the Christian life at times. And at this point, then, God becomes very angry with His people. The last phrase there, the ang- and the anger of the Lord in verse 1 of chapter 7 was kindled against the children of Israel. And then in verses 2 through 5, we see that Joshua sends out men to view Ai. Now again, all this is unknown except to God and Achan. And Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Bethaven, on the east side of Bethel, and spake unto them, saying, Go up and view the country. And the men went up and viewed Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said unto him, Let not all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and smite Ai, and make not all the people to labor thither, for they are but a few, that is, those of the city of Ai. So there went up thither of the people about three thousand men, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai smote of them about thirty and six men, for they chased them from before the gate even unto Shibarib, and smote them in the going down, wherefore the hearts of the people melted and became as water. So we see here Joshua sends out the men uh, to spy out Ai to take a look at the city that they're about ready to take. Verse three, we uh, we actually see them go out, and then in verse three they command or they counsel Joshua and put it that way. They counsel Joshua to only send about two or three thousand men. These fellows here, they've looked over and they are assured that only this few will be able to take it. Now, they could be charged with the sin of pride and tempting men or tempting God at this point. That is, they should have just went out and took the city uh, with the full force just as they did in the previous chapter. But they decided not to do this. Or we can, we can charge them with that. Or we can say that believing that God could make short order of all things, since that's exactly what he did in the last chapter, 
then their faith here is being exercised. Well, the point of the matter is, God doesn't comment one way or the other about this counsel. But Joshua heeds it. It sounds good to him. It sounds like, yes, that's right. We have defeated the city of Jericho. God Himself caused the walls to fall down. So let's just send two or three thousand men into Ai, against Ai, and we will take it. But then notice in verses 4 and 5, it did not work out like they thought. Faithful as they may have been with the promises of God and of past mercies of God, yet what do they do? They find out here that two or three thousand men is not enough to take the city. Now, it could have. God could have done it without anyone. But we all know the reason as to why the city couldn't be took. At this point, though, Israel doesn't know and Joshua doesn't know. And nor do the elders. The only person who's aware of this on earth at this time is uh, Achan because he is the one who has taken of the accursed thing. So we see, now notice in verse 5, they lose 36 men. We don't think we lost, they lost any in the previous chapter. At least it's not recorded. And I don't think they did. And yet here they lose 30. Of course, again, 36 out of 3,000. I think most men in uh, military circles would count that a good thing. But the point of it, though, is they fled before their enemies. They didn't really take the city. In fact, they were defeated. They were repelled. In fact, not only repelled, but they were chased. And then the same thing that, that God had put upon the people of the Canaanites of that day, that is, they were very scared, their heart was melted, that's exactly now how the people have become of Israel. So you see, we, the, the sin here even becomes deeper. It's cost them 36 men. It's cost them defeat. And it's demoralized, as we would say, the whole camp of Israel. Notice that last phrase. Wherefore, the hearts of the people melted and became as water. That was the same kind of wording and description of the Canaanite people when they had heard that Israel was coming into the land. Now this fear is upon the children of Israel themselves. See, sin just seems to breed, doesn't it? And causes further effects upon the children of God. And then in verses 6-9, through let's look here. And Joshua rent his clothes and fell to the earth upon his face before the ark of the Lord unto the eventide, he and the elders of Israel, and put dust upon their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, wherefore hast thou at all brought this people over Jordan to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Would to God we had been content and dwelt on the other side Jordan. O Lord, what shall I say? When Israel turneth their backs before their enemies. For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land shall hear of it. And shall environ us around and cut off our name from the earth. What wilt thou do unto thy great name? Well, we see here that Joshua in humility, and I suppose both personally, but also in the sense that this is a shame the whole country or the whole nation here, as well as that their people, the people's hearts had melted and become as water. 
But he is humble here, obviously, through some of the, uh, the things that we see. He rents his clothes. He goes upon the earth. He seeks the Lord. He throws dust into the air and upon himself. Those were signs of repentance. Those were signs of humility, especially in the Old Testament. So we see here that Joshua is humbled. And he presents, as it were, his case here to God. And notice here, he questions why. Why has this taken place? Why has it done this to the people of God? And why has it done this to your name? And then he says something that's very amazing here in verse 7. Have you heard language like this before? Notice. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, wherefore hast thou at all brought this people over Jordan to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Would to God we had been content and dwelt on the other side of Jordan. You could take that same language and put it into the five books of Moses and it would sound like the children of Israel except for the word Jordan. They would have said Egypt. Joshua here begins to sound like the people who have murmured in the past. In fact, you remember when Joshua was one of the spies, 12 spies who went over and he came back? And they said they gave a bad report. Joshua didn't, Caleb didn't, but the rest of the spies gave a bad report. That was the kind of language that the people rose up and said against Moses. Would to God we'd have been stuck over in Egypt rather than coming over here to die. Now, was Joshua doing this in discouragement? Well, there's a possibility because obviously he was the leader. All the responsibility, as it were, fell on him. Obviously, he's embarrassed. He's humbled. And it's amazing what can come out of some folks' mouth. Or we can look at it this way. He is using all of this as sincere arguments with God. Not in a murmuring sense, but in a sense of taking his arguments to God and say, Look, I'm wanting to persuade you here to have mercy upon us. Look, would we have died better in Jor on the other side than here? And then because he says that, notice the last part of verse 9. And wilt thou do unto thy great name? So there is a bit of difference between what the children of Israel said back in the land of sin and what they are, he is saying here. But boy, it gets awful close, doesn't it? The difference is that last clause. It makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it, when you look at it that way? And then thirdly, we see God's answer in verses 10 through 15. How does God respond to such a question like this? And the Lord said unto Joshua, Get thee up, wherefore liest thou thus upon thy face? Israel hath sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant which I commanded them. For they have even taken of the accursed thing, and have also stolen and dissembled also, and they have put it even among their own stuff. Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies, because they were accursed. Neither will I be with you any more, except you destroy the accursed from among you. Up, sanctify the people, and say... Sanctify yourselves against tomorrow, for thus saith the Lord God of Israel, There is an accursed thing in the midst of thee, O Israel. Thou canst not stand before thine enemies until ye take away the accursed thing from among you. 
In the morning, therefore, ye shall be brought according to your tribes. And it shall be that the tribe which the Lord taketh shall come according to the families thereof. And the family which the Lord shall take shall come by households. And the household which the Lord shall take shall come man by man. And it shall be that he that is taken with the accursed things shall be burnt with fire. He and all that he hath, because he hath transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he hath wrought folly in Israel. Well, Joshua gives a short prayer here, and God gives him six verses worth of answers back to him. And it's not good, is it? We see he answers Joshua, the reason why they've been defeated, the reason why their hearts are melting at this point, and why they turned tail and ran, and they couldn't take the city, was because there was sin among them. Israel. Again, he's still imputing this to everyone. Israel has sinned. Verse 11. And they also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. Notice he says covenant. That's a language that's very popular in the Old Testament. A covenant that God had made with them. And this covenant here, at this point, though again mean different things at different points in the Old Testament, here though it means in what he said back in verse chapter 6 and verse 18. And you don't see here the people saying, yes, that's what I'll do. God makes the covenant sovereignly with His people and expects them to obey. Somehow the idea, well, man has to somehow return back the covenant before it's ratified and good. Not so. God said, don't do it. And that's the covenant, according to verse uh, 11 here. So God has made this covenant with Israel. Don't take the cursed thing. And of course, uh, this one man, Achan at the point, does. And notice also, he gives Joshua here the remedy for the problem. You're to take the tribes of the people together, all the nation, and you to basically find out tribe by tribe, and then finally, family by family, man by man, who is guilty of this taking of the accursed thing and transgressing God's covenant. You notice here, to test their obedience, he doesn't just give them the name. By the way, it's Achan. He doesn't do that, does he? He could have. Obviously, God knew who it was. But he doesn't do that here, does he? He makes them go through this process to eliminate everyone else except for the man Achan. So this is part of their obedience. Is Joshua going to obey God? Well, of course he does. But here is the test to Joshua. When things are tough, you know, things may get tougher. The idea, oh, I cry to God and things are going to be better? Not necessarily. Some of us have cried long and still have the same temptations and trials and adversities. Paul cried three times and yet still God didn't hear him and told him finally he wasn't going to basically hear My grace is sufficient for you. So he gives him there the remedy and they are to take care of it. God is not for them. In that sense. He's not going to do it for them. How important that is, Christian, in our walk. God isn't going to make you pray. That is, He's not going to take your little feet, put them on the floor, get you out of bed, and put your clothes on you and make you bow down and put your hands in front of you, put out your prayer book or your prayer list, whatever that is that you may use in order to stir you up to pray and begin to move in your mouth and waggling your tongue. God doesn't do that for you. You do it. He works in you. 
both to will and to do of his good pleasure, but you are the one who does it. And so the children of Israel, though they could have heard from the very lips of God who was guilty and forgot all of this process from verses 12 down through verse 15, but yet this is what they are to do. They are accountable and here responsible as they have heard now what is their job. They are to do so. And then notice verses 16 through 21. He says, So Joshua rose up early in the morning and brought Israel by their tribes and the tribe of Judah was taken. So after all this is done, it's narrowed down to the tribe of Judah. And he brought finally of the Judah, he brought the family of Judah, excuse me, and he took the family of the Zarhites and he brought the family of the Zarhites man by man and Zabdi was taken. And he brought his household man by man and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Carmi, excuse me, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. And Joshua said unto Achan, My son, give, I pray thee, glory to the Lord God of Israel, and make confession unto him, and tell me now what thou hast done. Hide it not from me. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and thus and thus have I done. When I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonish garment and two hundred shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of fifty shekels weight, then I coveted them and took them, and behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent and the silver under it. So we see here that Joshua obeys and he seeks out here the guilty one. And after they go through this, and however they did it, whether it was by lot, we don't know. But finally, it was through the tribe of Israel, or the tribe of Judah was narrowed down. And then from Judah became a family, and then that family it finally revealed that, not, uh, that it was Achan who had stolen it. And so Achan here is found out for his sin. Now remember, nobody knew that he took it that we're aware of. Joshua, in particular, didn't know. There's a possibility that even his family did not know. But he's found out, isn't he? By God. And then verses 22 through 26, down at the end of the chapter, we see that Achan here is proved guilty, and then, of course, he's punished. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran unto the tent, and behold, it was hid in his tent and the silver under it. And they took them out of the midst of the tent, and brought them unto Joshua and unto all the children of Israel, and laid them out before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah, and the silver, and the garment, and the wedge of gold, and his sons, and his daughters, and his oxen, and his asses, and his sheep, and his tent, and all that he had, and they brought them unto the valley of Acre. And Joshua said, Why hast thou troubled us? The Lord shall trouble thee this day. And all Israel stoned him with stones, and burned them with fire, after they had stoned them with stones. And they raised up over him a great heap of stones unto this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger, wherefore the name of that place was called the Valley of Achor unto this day. And the word Achor there means trouble. So Achan is in Achor at that time. So we see here that Achan is proved guilty. He's punished. And uh, just to verify all this, of course, men are sent to find the items. 
not only just to show that he's guilty, but also to destroy all of that. Verse 25, we see there's a pronouncement of doom upon him. And notice, and his family and all that he has. That is verse 24 and 25. So it's not just Achan who suffers here, but his whole family. Well, what can we say about all this? Well, first of all, before I even get into that, what a sad situation this is here, isn't it? Sad to see sin. Sad to see the effects of sin. But what must be done? Well, let's look at this as we think about these four or five applications that I have this morning. First of all, while we may sin alone, the effects of that sin are wide. Somehow the idea, well, if I'm just home in my own little uh, house, how can my sins affect others? Well, whether you understand that or whether you believe not, nonetheless, it is true. Your sins have far-reaching effects that you, in your moment of lust and self-delusion, may not see. But let me tell you, in reality, from God's Word, we see that effects of sin are widespread. They just do not affect the individual. How many drunk have we heard? Well, I'm only drinking. It's just myself. And, of course, you lose your job. And then your family suffers. And then you got people who have taken care of you and so forth. It's just a vicious cycle. It does affect others as well as yourself. This sin here cost Israel 36 men. It cost them defeat of a city. It cost them shame and embarrassment and weak needs because they because of this one man's disobedience. Think of Adam, if you want to take it away from Achan at this moment. Adam's one transgression plunged the whole world into guilt and condemnation. One man, one sin. And he was alone in the... Well, just his family was in the garden, his wife. So you see, brethren, it does make a difference. Your sin, whether it's public or private, I assure you here this morning, affects this church. Whether I know there is a sin, just like Joshua didn't know, or whether I do know the sin, it matters little as far as the knowledge of that is concerned. Your sin, your sin, or my sin, affects this whole congregation. So stop being so self-centered and selfish, and stop your sinning. And you know who I'm talking about. You feel the guilt of it even now upon your own conscience. Your neck's starting to turn red because I'm speaking to you and you know it. Put it away before we have to put you away. Just as they did with Achan. Do you want to sin? Do you want to continue in sin and not only deprive yourself of blessings, but deprive others of blessings? That's what you're doing. With your continued disobedience to God. Is it worth it? Ask Achan if we could bring him up from the grave today and say, Achan, was it worth it? Was your individualism, was your self-deception Was sin so deceitful now that it's become worth it? You know what he would have to say? No. 
Would to God people would learn from my sin, he would say. Say, would people think like that? Remember the rich man who died and lifted up his eyes in hell? He said, go and tell my family that they won't go to this place. So, yeah, I think that is what they think. Be sure your sin will find you out. And I preach that to me as well. I have to be careful. I have to be watchful of my soul. My actions. Both as a public man and as a private individual. And so do you. If I sounded harsh, I'd rather be harsh than see you perish. But I say this out of love and concern for your souls. Put it away. Put it away. Stop it. Or start doing what you ought to do. See, sin goes both ways, doesn't it? Don't do certain things because he said don't do them. And then you do certain things because he said do them. There are sins of omission and sins of commission. Second, notice what happens here to our end if we are greedy and covetous. What did, uh, finally, in verse, uh, where was it at? Oh, I lost it now. Oh, verse 21, where he admits his guilt and sin. What did he say he did? I coveted them. Brethren, we need to see that coveting, which is, of course, against the tenth commandment itself, greed and all those kind of things, we see the end of that. Listen to this proverb. 15 verse 27. He that is greedy of gain troubleth his own house. Is that not what happened to Achan? He was troubled and his household was troubled. Why? Because of greed and covetousness. When I saw the spoils, a goodly Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold, 50 shekels weight, then I coveted them and took them. Here, notice again the progress of sin. I saw, I wanted, I took them. That's kind of the progress of sin, isn't it? He that is greedy of gain troubleth his own house. Secondly, or thirdly, excuse me, the deceitfulness of sin. This is where we all, I think, fall short. The deceitfulness of sin. It is so deceitful, it will make you think you're doing right. It may make you think that you're just following hunky-dory the commands of God. When in reality, you're a transgressor. And and just the thing here with Achan, he looked at the gold, he saw all the glimmer of it, he saw that, notice he calls it here, a goodly Babylonian garment. He still considered a nice thing at the moment here. And all of this, probably in and of itself, fine, unless it was an idol, of course, then it was neither here nor they for that matter, it was sin. But notice 
these things in and of themselves, just as gold and silver, as we know that those are the kind of things that are to be brought into the treasury of the Lord. They're not sinful in and of themselves, but they deceived Achan. Or Achan was deceived. And yet he sinned, notice here again, in plain light. Back in chapter uh, 6 again, And ye in any wise keep yourselves from the accursed thing, lest ye make yourselves accursed. And that's exactly what he calls them here. He didn't do this because he was ignorant. Sin had so deceived his heart that he somehow justified it in his mind. Made it all right. Probably had the hope, hey, no one's ever going to see me. I know I can get away with it. I'm off in my little room by myself, or I'm off in my little place by myself, and no one can see. But God did. And He troubled Achan's house. Here again, how the gold and the gleam and all that kind of stuff deceived Achan. There are pleasures of sin for a season. I wonder what he thought when he got that thing home. He must have knew he was doing wrong because you know what? He buried it. He didn't go around tooting his horn as some sinners do. Look, I've sinned. It's okay. No, he actually took the thing home and hid it under his tent, thinking somehow that tent covered God's eyes. Here again, how deceitful our hearts are that we can fool God. Yeah, he fooled his leaders and probably even fooled his household. But he didn't fool God. He saw it. Which brings me to my fourth point. God does see you all. Joshua and the leaders, they were not aware of this. The nation of Israel were not aware of this. We don't even know, as I said earlier, if Achan's family was aware of what he did. But again, we know that God does. God's eyes are over all. He beholds the good and the evil. And you know what else he knows? He knows the shoddy and silly excuses we can give for sin. In our own hearts or whether we say it by mouth. He knows them. Do you think they hold water? They didn't hold water for Achan, and they won't hold water for us. And you say, wow, well, you've really beat us down today with all of this. Well, brethren, sometimes that's exactly what we need, don't we? We need to be like Joshua and humble ourselves. And it wasn't Joshua who sinned. Though he was imputed with the guilt of it, it wasn't him who sinned. It was Achan. And yet we see Joshua humbled. And this is what I want us to see this morning. Brethren, if there is sin in the camp, we all need to be humble, but especially the sinner himself or herself. They need to be humble. And again, if this is our case, we need to repent We need to confess it and we need to seek forgiveness in Christ and His blood and mercy. And put it away then and be obedient. And when it's even necessary to bear up under God's chastisement, do so.
And it's true. No chastisement seems joyous for the moment. But it does yield forth those peaceable fruits of righteousness, don't they? You know, Achan confessed. Notice verse 20. It ain't bad confession. It sounds good. Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and thus and thus have I done. He confesses, he agrees that he sinned, but he gets it in the end, doesn't he? God's hand, whether this man was a Christian or not, I don't, I'm not even going to go there. The point of the matter is, if he was, he was chastened anyway. Even after this bold confession. Just as David David, Nathan says, Thou art the man. I have sinned. That's all he said. I have sinned. And Nathan says, God has put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. But your child will. So even though David was forgiven, even though David confessed it, yet he was still punished for the chastisement of the Lord. And he bore up under it, didn't he? And so must we. But if it's unto hell, woe be you this morning. Let me assure you, your only hope is Christ Jesus and His mercy towards us.